Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on June 22nd, 2019 at the Academy Playhouse in Orleans, Massachusetts. The theme was Best Laid Plans. I'm Vanessa Vardabedian. And I'm William Mullen. And we are the hosts of the Mosquito Story Slam. We heard some really interesting stories. You can't predict. You can only prepare. And all plans go out the window. Well, that was the general gist for sure. Stories from about how addiction can get in the way to surprise parties gone awry, bad first dates. We heard from a first-time storyteller who wove us through a story of an unexpected great bike ride with a seemingly unhealthy dad. Yeah, that that was a great story. And well, we also Jerry Riley, who co-hosts with us sometimes as well, <laughs> told a very cool story about a scheme that he pulled off. It's one of the best a plans too well, that, that actually works. Yeah. Well, William, you start out with a story and you took the theme best laid plans to the literal sense. I certainly did, and my mother wasn't very happy about it. Let's share the story. Uh, Welcome and best laid plans. Um, As Vanessa said, I do storytelling. And when I heard that, um, (laughs) I know there's young people here, but all I saw was the word laid. And, And it took me back to high school. And so my story revolves around a plan I had to get laid that I thought was the best plan ever. (laughs) And I went to high school um, in the 80s uh, in a small town in Connecticut. And the the 80s was the height of those coming-of-age John Hughes movies. Remember these movies? Right, The Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, Sixteen Candles. And in every one of those movies, all the kids wanted to do is like get laid. And so I just was obsessed in high school of trying to like mimic some of those upperclassmen guys who like try to score with the pretty girls. And it never happened <laughs> um, all through my high school years because I wasn't one of those like jock kind of guys. I was... Um, a, a pep band geek, so I played trumpet, and not even well. Like, if you're gonna geek it out, geek it out. Like, you know, be really good at the instrument. I was like, and, and I befriended all these other pep band guys, and so it's our senior year, and during a basketball game, um, I befriended these two young freshman girls, and I thought they were pretty cute, and, um, and I started talking to them, and they were 14 years old, and I was a senior, and I was getting toward 18 years old, but I didn't care. I was just like, I want to be like a John Hughes movie stud. And so I go back to the pep band, and I told my friend Bill, who is even a bigger geek than me, very talented musician, he was really good, but he was like playing tuba. Like, that's the geekiest instrument. Like, you're hauling around this huge carcass of brass around your shoulder. (laughs) So I I go to him, I'm like, I met these two 
uh, uh, girls, and, and I know you have your dad's car tonight. And he's like, yeah. And so at halftime, I approached them, and I'm like, so hey, ladies. It was so bad. I was like, hey, uh, if you want to grab some beer with my friend Bill and I, we can head to the football fields. Because the week before, I took a class trip to New York City, and I got a fake ID. And let me tell you, fake IDs in the 80s were ridiculous. I can't even believe these worked. I got one. It was an employee ID for Acme Corporation. <laughs> it was like something you would see in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. And, and I'd get to try it out. So I had my fake ID. And, and of course, this is before, way before, right, social media, but they were freshman girls and they were pretty smart. And they're like, hey, we need to hang out with upperclassmen to get, you know, higher popularity. So they're like, yes. So after the basketball game, we go into Bill's father's forest green Chevy Impala and we make our way to the package store, appropriately named the package store. And I go in and buy what any high school senior considers sophisticated beverage, a case of Bush beer in cans in a cardboard box. It was weird. It's like, and, and my ID worked flawlessly. They're like, yep, no problem here. I was like, it says Acme Corporation. Anyway, so I go back to the car with this box, and I get in, and we make our way to the football fields. And then I get into the back with Teresa, who is this young, like, kind of like Native American, fiery Italian um, girl. She was great. They both wore braces, which really was like, made them look 10. It was crazy. <laughs> it was like, what am I doing? I'm like, it's John Hughes, John Hughes. And, uh, and then in the front seat was Annette, and she was like really pretty, fair skin, um, uh, great eyes, great smile. And so then I go, and Bill turns on the radio, and the cars start playing. Let the good times roll. Let them knock you around. I'm passing bruise around. I'm like, this plan is going according to plan. I'm like, yes. I'm like, ladies, would you like a bush beer? They're like, yes, totally. And they're like, we've never tasted beer before. So we're sitting there, and right when I'm about to go and lean over and kiss the brace-filled Teresa, Bill's like, a car just came in. And I looked over, and I noticed the two blue lights on top of its. And I was like, what the hell? I was like, oh my god. Here we are, four of us. Each of us have beers. I have a cardboard box of beer sitting in the car. I'm like, we're completely screwed. So I'm like, think, think, think. And I asked, I, I said, okay, give me your beers. They gave me my beer, uh, their beers. I put them in the cardboard box. The police cruiser pulls up on the driver's side. I'm on the passenger side. I have the box. While he's getting out, I slowly and quietly open the door, take the cardboard box of beer, and slide it under the car. <laughs> and I'm like this. Uh, license and registration, and Bill's like panicked. He's like, um, yeah, here, here, here you go. And he's like, you know, this park's supposed to be closed. And Bill starts stuttering, panicked. And I was like, yeah, but officer, the gate was open. We didn't see a sign. I mean, how are we supposed to know? He's just like, he closes at dusk. Uh, well, it's closed. Okay, so he goes, okay, these check out. Takes a flashlight, 
starts checking in the car for any, like, obviously beer or drugs or things like that. And we're just like, la, 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 la. And he's like, okay, you guys just follow me out. And he leaves. And Bill's like, what happened to the beer? And I was like, I was, and then, and then Teresa's like, high fives me. And it's like, oh my God, William's so awesome. He took the beer and he put it under the car. He's amazing. And she goes and she kisses me. And I'm like, yeah. I felt like Judd Nelson in the Breakfast Club. It's amazing. And we're all celebrating. And we're not realizing that the cop car has come to the, a stop, is now turned around, and now his headlights are illuminating the cardboard box beer underneath the car. So he drives up against the passenger, and we're like, ah! And he goes, can you get out of the car? We all line up. And he goes, what is a case of beer doing underneath your car? And I go, and I was in a panic, I go, there's a case of beer underneath our car? What a coincidence! And my friend Bill is just like, okay, knock it off. He bought it with a fake ID down at the package store that he got in New York City, and he put it there when he arrived. I was like, thank you, this is great. And then he called for another police officer, and that's when I knew I wasn't getting laid that night. And he made us dump out, it took a long time, each um, can of beer onto the ground, like that was gonna teach us a lesson, because I didn't even really like the beer. And then he, we got in the patrol car and we go to the station, and I was panicked. I'd never been in trouble before, never been arrested before, and we all go on there, and I'm thinking, wow, this is really bad. But wait, it does get worse. It turns in from a John Hughes movie to Nightmare on Elm Street. Because each of us had a call, a parent, to come get us. Now, I won't go into describing what and who my mom was. That's all, that could take hours. <laughs> but I called the house and my brother answered and I said, Tim, you need to just come pick me up. I'm at the police. Mom, Bill's at the police station! I was like, for crying out loud. And of course, we're waiting. And she comes in. This woman in a nightgown, slippers, with a winter coat thrown over. And the best way I can describe her is Norma Desmond, but with sound. So she f opens the door and she goes, where is he, where is he? <laughs> Everyone in the station's like, what is this? And she's like, she's like, what did he do? What did he do? <laughs> I was like, I can't believe this. How much, he should stay the night in that jail cell. Stay the night, how much do you officers want? I'll pay you to teach him a lesson. Everyone is watching this. The whole station is silent. And I was like, Mom, please. And a, a, a few months before that, my father had passed. And of course, she had to bring that up. What would your father, your dead father, say to this? I was like, oh my. He's rolling in his grave right now. The shame you've brought this family. And this officer on the river was like, Mrs. Mullen, they're kids. Just be glad that they're safe. Safe, he's not safe, he's going home. He's in a lot of danger. <laughs> she grabs my arm, drags me out of there, and I do one quick last look to Teresa, <laughs> whose face now has changed. 
in the car she was looking at her John Hughes hero. And now it was like she was reading the reviews of Revenge of the Nerds. That is my story of best laid plan. This didn't work out. I'm gonna bring up our first storyteller of the evening. I mean, I was the first storyteller, but I'm co-host, so. All right, put your hands together right now for Everett Taylor. So I, uh, I was born with a genetic disorder called cystic fibrosis. You may have heard of it. Um, it does a variety of things. Uh, but chiefly the thing that's dangerous is, is your lungs. It's slowly, your lungs sort of degrade over time, uh, unless you work really hard to keep them healthy. Um, but it causes a variety of issues other than that, and, and there's like, m trying to make plans generally is just, so my life has sort of been not any best laid plans, just, just wasn't realistic. Uh, but my parents and my friends worked really hard and kept me very, very healthy. I was hospitalized one time through the end of high school, which is phenomenal for someone with this particular disorder. Uh, and then in my freshman year of college, I, I, I contracted a bacteria that is sort of available in the environment, but uh, it wouldn't pose a harm to anyone who didn't have this particular disease. Uh, and so my health sort of slowly started to spiral. And you know, I'm in college, I am really making plans. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, 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 get, I'm starting to get really sick, and the plans are having to change. And I'm spending more and more time in the hospital, weeks at a time. Um, you know, you start missing, I missed whole semesters at school. I did manage to cram and graduate on time, fortunately. Um, I missed funerals. I missed sporting events. I missed birthdays, all kinds of things. Um, but I graduated, uh, I made plans, I started working in the, in, in the field of mental health, it's taking care of very acutely ill people coming down from like a state level hospital. Uh, unfortunately, those people usually have, are very sick too, like they just carry more illnesses because they don't care for themselves as well. And so I was getting really sick, so that plan goes out the window, I have to leave that job, I get another job, I get licensed, I get three different licenses so I can be a financial advisor. And then I get so sick, I spend three months in the hospital, and I need a lung transplant, a double lung transplant. So now the financial advisor job, that's out the window too, because the rest of my life is on hold. I have to start disability, I start visiting hospitals, and the bacteria that I had is very high risk. And every hospital is just rejecting me. They're like, we can't, it's too risky, we're not sure that we can even do this. And the reality is that these these programs, their funding is dependent on success. And so the more difficult cases they take, the less likely they are to get funding. Uh, fortunately, Duke University took me on and they did an incredible job and my family and our friends bent over backwards to keep me healthy and I was transplanted uh, four years ago, a little over four years ago, yeah, thank you, yeah. Um, so the other difficult thing with this dis disorder is, is meeting girls, because there's a lot of medical stuff, uh, it can be difficult. So my strategy over time became hide everything for like two dates and then tell them everything if you like them, <laughs> you know? 
So, so I had met this girl a couple of months after I was transplanted, and I was already healthy enough that it was not obvious. I, I sort of looked like this, basically. Um, maybe a little weaker, because I was still recovering a bit. Uh, but I meet this girl, and she's amazing. Um, we start dating. A year goes by. Two years goes by. And although making really firm plans has not worked out in my life, I decide if I, like, I really want to be with this girl, I need to ask her to marry me. And I need to make a plan, a firm one. Now, I'm not going to go anything, I'm not going to go too crazy, because in my life, going big, you're just, something's going to go wrong for sure. I'd like, the whole plan happens, and then I end up in the hospital right before. So I come up with something that I think is really nice. I'm going to go to this local state park where we like to walk, and there's this big rock. It's right off the shore, but at low tide, you can go out to it, and you can get up on it. So how am I going to get her on the rock? taking photos with me so I can also record the event without it being obvious. Now, I don't love taking pictures, and so I know that she, at any opportunity to take photos with me that she can then put on social media, she's in. It's sold. So I tell her, listen, our anniversary's coming up, and I think we should do, like, we should go out to that rock that we really like and just, like, do a little photo shoot, you know? We're just gonna... It's just going to be great. It's just a little, you know, I know you like doing that. I don't do it that often. I guess I'll do it for you for this. It's not a big deal. So the day comes around, and I'm nervous, as you can imagine. I mean, I'm a pretty level-headed guy. I've been through a lot in my life. It's, it's hard to rattle me. It's a beautiful day. I could not have asked for better weather. We both get home from work. We hop in the car. We're going to take the photos. We turn into this park, and a wall of fog, like you would not believe, <laughs> just rolls in. And I'm panicking. Should we go to a different park? Crystal, do you still want to do it here? I'm not sure this is right. And she's in the car next to me like, what is he worked up about? Why is this? Like, we're just taking some pictures. Chill. We get out there, I'm walking around, you can't even see the rock from the shore, it's just terrible, it's not gonna work. I'm looking for anything that will make a decent backdrop. So I finally find a bush that has some yellow in it, and there's some green behind that, and I said, you know what, let's just, let's do it here. So we set the camera up on this rock, it's like a rock and a backpack, and then we set it, so you know you have the feature, it takes pictures every three, four seconds. I get that going. And we start standing there, and I am very uncomfortable in pictures. And I'm like, okay, is there a particular position we should do? And now in my head, I'm like, I can't even take pictures. How am I supposed to ask this girl to marry me? <laughs> and so finally, she's like, I'm not sure which, which way to do it. Is there, like, maybe we should do it like this? And I'm like, well, how about, and just like in my head, how about this position? And I just get down on my knees. <laughs> and I'm like, will you marry me? I love you so much. And she's just... Like this, you know, silent, the sort of classic, the movie look. She's crying a little bit. She's not saying anything. And a couple of seconds into this, I'm realizing these are very sharp rocks that I just kneeled on. And I'm definitely bleeding. Uh, and she's not saying anything. And I'm bleeding. And I'm not sure. Do I wait for an answer? If I get up, does that nullify the answer? I'm not sure. And so literally, finally, I was like, listen, you haven't said anything yet, but I really need to get up off of this knee. And she goes, oh my gosh, yes, yes, yes. 
And I get up, and although my knee's a little bloody, and the plan didn't quite go as I had anticipated, she said yes, and we got married a year later. So, yeah. So she's here with me, and I love you so much. You're the best. Okay, welcome to the stage, Carol Ann Burtwell. So glad to be here. Um, have you ever woken up in the morning and think it's going to be just a glorious day, and it turns out to be the biggest nightmare day of your entire life? I have. So it was Easter Sunday, and um, can I take this out? No. Okay. Um, and uh, I backstory: I moved here from California last July. And I'm a single mom. I was a very big helicopter mom. Uh, and my son is still in California. He's 31. So I uh, pulled over to call him, wish him happy Easter. <sighs> he was missing. Uh, the long, short story on that is uh, I called his phone. I got some strange guy answered it that found it on the side of the road. I called his roommate. And he was like a helicopter mom. He said, oh, my God, he's, he's not like him. He was supposed to be at a party last night. He never showed up. He never came home. And I'm, sit, I'm over on the side of the road in my car 3,000 miles away going, oh, my God. And I always know. See, my best laid plans was my son was not going to be an addict. My mother was an alcoholic. My father was an alcoholic. My former husband was an alcoholic and drug addict. And... I was determined at age two that he was going to learn how to not go that direction and did everything, but of course, <laughs> that doesn't work. But he had worked very hard on his sobriety. Um, he almost died a couple times, and he had been, at this point, sober for a year, and I just got a really bad feeling in my stomach, so I was sitting there, and, and, and so uh, his roommate Brian and I tried to find him called friends who were sitting there on the phone, texting, calling, and all of a sudden a cop goes by. And I'm in Chatham at this moment. And I think it's just a grand idea, crying mascara all over my face, to like wave him down. So I go and follow him. You know how they have the lights and they follow us. Well, I was doing that to him, waving, beeping my horn at him, not even like thinking clearly. So he finally pulls over, and I go running out. I was dressed up in high heels, and um, he slowly rolls down his window like he is going to kill me, like the look on his face. And then I start telling my story, and I said, can you <laughs> tell me how to file a missing person's report because I've never done that? And he was really nice and helped me out, and I got back in my car, and I sat there in this the most loneliest, surreal moment in my life thinking I got to do this and at that point I have this huge family and my little brother happened to call from India to say happy Easter and uh, he did the most incredible thing he said we'll do a three-way to the cops in California I'll I'll be with you to report Dakota missing and that was just like I don't know, that gave me just, like, I'm going to stay alive through this. So fast forward, we found him in jail, 
he had slept on uh, the floor of a jail with urine and slept on a milk carton, one of those little things you drink in kindergarten, you know, that was his pillow. He was scared out of his mind. He didn't remember what he did, but what he did was he was riding his bike and decided uh, he was with a group of people and they wanted to get a beer and he said, oh yeah, I can do that. And that's, you know, I just want to <laughs> sidestep here and say that my experience with addiction might not be yours, but it's just my experience, strength, and hope that I'm saying here. So you don't have to agree, but um, I've just uh, been through the ringer with it. And um, it's one of those things that it is a disease, and it's very shameful, and people are very silent, and people are judgmental. And, and I've gone the whole round about with it, and all I knew is my son was missing and he was in jail and he did this horrible thing where he went into a construction site. He's not a violent kid at all. He drank a whole bunch of tequila and wine and God knows what else. And he also takes Wellbutin and blacked out totally. Damaged this whole, not this whole, but he, there was a, a house overlooking the ocean in La Jolla and he broke windows and granite in the um, kitchen and just, smashed a lot of things and the cops <laughs> came and the helicopter cops came and asked him to you know put his hands up come out the front door and he went out the back and they could have shot him and if they did I would have never known why he was what happened and so anyway fast forward he's distraught like he can't even every sentence I say on the phone it's, it's too much for him and so I finally get the police report, and I'm like, such a wreck. I mean, my stomach, like for, I studied this police report. I thought, okay, I'm I gotta get something positive out of this. And so I just made a whole list of all the great things that he did right, and I prayed and chanted, like, I'm kind of a little hippie, and I just did all the things that I could see positive. And the outcome is, he got two felonies, and, and um, one, the burglary one was dismissed, and the vandalism, if he's good for 18 months, it gets uh, totally off his record, and it's a misdemeanor. And he's in a great, safe program with a sponsor, and I think he got scared straight, but all I know is I'm so grateful that I got through that with my positiveness, and I gave him the right things as a mother could do. I, I, I know that's my biggest thing is I just want to do the right thing as a mother. And I kept praying to God I would do the right thing for him and not be a codependent, overbearing, you know, scolding. And I did, and we got a good outcome, and he's on probation for three years, and I think he's going to make it. And I know I am. Thank you. Okay, Greg Jussel. Greg Jussel, another first-time mosquito storyteller. So the birth control one was my wife. So, <laughs> so we got that going for us already. So let me preface this by saying I did tell a story once before, uh, a couple years ago at one of these, and it was pretty cool. So I figured give it another shot. I love my sister-in-law. She's a beautiful woman. She's great. <laughs> my wife says, oh shit, he's gonna tell this story. <laughs> so about probably eight, nine years ago, my niece comes to my wife and she says, hey, listen, mom was really upset last year when I didn't do anything for her birthday. What, can we do something at your house for her birthday this year? 
Susie says, sure, yeah, we'll, we'll throw a surprise party. So they, my niece and my wife, they plan the surprise party for my sister-in-law at my house, and uh, we get burgers, we get dogs, sausages, the whole nine yards. We invite like her whole neighborhood, which I don't know any of them, nobody. So party day comes, we get everything set up, all these people arrive at my house, I don't know them, which is cool, you know, whatever, I'm gonna play a good host, I'm gonna do my thing. About seven o'clock, everybody's like, shh, Judy's here. All right, so here comes Judy bopping in the house. She knows something's up before she even gets to the front door. She comes in the house, everybody, hey, surprise. Judy proceeds to start crying and runs out of the house. I'm like, all right, this is going as planned. This is great. <laughs> so Susie and my niece coax her back into the house. Judy is now grasping one of her grandchildren like it's gold. And she's talking to Susie and she's saying, I begged you, I pleaded with you, do not have a party for me. And meanwhile, last year she's all upset, nothing happened. This year, we're all upset something did happen. So at the same time, they're trying to sort it out with Judy in the, in the living room, trying to get her to come in and say hi to all her friends, the whole nine yards. I forget, I had already lit the grill and put all the food on. So they're in there talking. I'm, I'm like peeking around the corner, trying to figure out what the hell's going on. So I'm like, all right, I'm going back out back. I go back out to the barbecue. My barbecue was engulfed in flames at this point. I'm talking like 700 degrees on the, on the thermostat the whole nine yards, I mean, flames pouring out the bottom, flames pouring out the top. So I pull the thing away from my house because I'm sure my house is gonna go up now. And uh, so I calm it down, I open up the door, everything in there is, you know, ruined. So Susie comes out back and she says, listen, Judy's really upset. Katie and I and Judy are going out for dinner. <laughs> I'm like, you're fucking shitting me, right? So. So now here I am, a house full of people that I don't really know, a barbecue that is just engulfed in flames, they leave. My niece's husband and his kids are like, like, they're gone, they're out the door, they leave. So now I literally know nobody except my three children. And uh, barbecue, so what do I do? I grab the cheese, I throw cheese on all the burgers, I take the sausages, I flip them to the good side, put them in the buns, bring them in, and I serve everybody, I serve everybody this dinner. Now it's rolling around, it's, it's, it's like nine o'clock, and I'm expecting, okay, they're gonna go out, grab dinner, come home, we'll do, you know, have a little celebration. No, nothing. I have 20 people sitting in my living room and in my kitchen, and I have no idea what to do now. Everybody's eating burnt hamburgers, burnt cheeseburgers, burnt everything. About nine o'clock. <laughs> my kids are young. They're like, all right, so I tuck all them in bed, and now I'm sitting on the couch watching ESPN, I think, with all these people drinking in my house. And uh, I'm like, oh, I forgot. We got cake. So, so I'm like, let's serve cake. We're going to do cake. So my oldest daughter is still, actually all my daughters are still in, uh, out of bed. And I said to uh, my, my oldest daughter, I'm like, hey, grab the cake, it's in the oven. And we'll get, we'd already put the candles on it, the whole nine yards. So she goes, <laughs> she goes to get the cake out of the oven and the freaking oven was at 175. <laughs> so now, now we got a cake with candles melted all over the top. <laughs> what, is, what does super dad do? 
take the new can of frosting. <laughs> Smear, literally smeared around with my finger, trying try to get this stuff back on there. Serve cake to everybody. <laughs> These freaking girls are still not home. I don't know what to do. It's 10 o'clock, best laid plans. I look at everybody in the kitchen, everybody in the room, like, hey, listen, the famous old bar thing. You gotta go. All of you, all of you gotta go. You gotta get out of my house. It was nice meeting you all, but that's, that's really, that was my best laid plan. For Paul Hewins. Paul, come to the stage. It's the fall of 1991, and I just turned 27 years old, and I found myself riding across the northern island of New Zealand on a bicycle with the least likely person possible. My out of shape, overweight, 61-year-old dad. That was not the plan. The plan was to go with my best friend. The plan was to take three weeks and kind of just take a moment and think about life. I was 27. I had graduated college, I had a decent job, but I was, wasn't quite yet into adulthood. And I wanted to make that switch, I was ready for it, but I didn't quite know, you know what that meant. So I wanted to take this three weeks, so that was my plan. My best friend, however, had a different situation. He was heading towards a dark part of his life, and right before the trip, he cancels. So I said, you know what, screw it, I'm gonna go alone. You know, I'm gonna go alone because his sense of adventure was trying a different type of ketchup, or his sense of adventure was having Pepsi rather than Coke. He had no sense of adventure, so I'm gonna go alone. And just before the trip, my father calls me and says, I'd like to go with you. And I think, this is a guy whose bicycle experience was maybe three miles every month on the Cape Cod Rail Trail, only to go hide a cigarette from my mother. <laughs> so, that's what I thought at the time, but years later I realized um, he got married when he was 19. He was in the Air Force, had his first child at 19, had four kids, raised them over 33 years, um, went directly from the Air Force to IBM, and just when his last child, me, got out of the house and went to college, he had to bring his parents into the house and deal with an eight-year, um, my, my grandfather had Alzheimer's for eight years, Three years, three months after that, my grandmother didn't want to live on any further because she lost her best friend. So this was less than a year before the trip. He dreamt of being a test pilot. He loved Chuck Yeager. He read all these stories, but he never had an adventure. So for him, this was an adventure. I just thought he thought I was a knucklehead. So, okay, I said, all right, Dad, let's go. So we, we take this trip, and I don't have any money. So it was a 30-something hour plane flight that stopped everywhere. He didn't sleep the night before, he didn't sleep on the plane, and when we got to New Zealand, my sister had an exchange student who went to Harwich High School um, whose family were Maori Indians and they wanted us to stay at their house the first night and they threw us a big party. So didn't sleep before the trip, didn't sleep on the plane, didn't sleep that night. The next morning I get up and I'm on the front lawn and I'm assembling the bikes and I'm packing the packs and I can see Dee and her family up on the porch and they're giving me this look like, what are these crazy white Americans doing riding around for three weeks? And my dad kind of walks out sheepishly and he comes up to me and I know what he's gonna say and he says, um, I've made a horrible mistake in coming with you. And he's standing between me and the front porch and I look up at the front porch and I kind of wave at Dee and her family and I look at him and I go, get on the fucking bike. 
get on the fucking bike right now. And I never swore to my father, so it kind of shocked him. He got on the bike. First day was horrible. His, his butt hurt. The bike wasn't right. We'd get to the hotel. It was a one-star hotel. Ate, slept. Next day, not any better. You know, butt hurts. You know, third day, though, we fell into this kind of magical rhythm. Um, he was the guy that rode like this. He rode pedal, pedal, glide. Pedal, pedal, glide. So I would ride ahead. And this was before cell phones. We had a handwritten map. So I would ride either to the road that we were going to take a turn on, or I would just ride far enough ahead where I couldn't see him anymore. And I'd sit on the side of the road and I'd wait. In the northern island of New Zealand, it's kind of like rural Vermont. It's hilly, it's green, it's sheep and cows. And I'd sit on the side of the road and I'd wait. And he'd come, pedal, pedal, glide. Pedal, pedal, glide. And he'd never stop. He'd just kind of nod at me and he'd keep going. So I sit and I, you know, and I'm, I'd watch him go. But on the third day, and every day after that, he, in his bizarre little pedal, pedal glide, he was looking out, and he was relaxed, and he was smiling, and he was having an adventure, and he was happy. He didn't have his responsibilities, and he, he was just enjoying life. So that was 27 years ago, um, and my father retired early and um, worked in the cranberry bogs after he retired and he caned chairs, and he was happiest he's ever been uh, down here on the Cape. So I'm one year away from that age, and I'm kind of at the same place again, where I'm thinking about, what's my plan? You know, what am I supposed to do next? And um, I don't need a three-week bike trip, certainly not with a guy in too tight of bike shorts, and a gut hanging out, pretending not to smoke when he was. Um, I have this vision, though, that it makes me laugh, is he's pedal, pedal, glide pedal, pedal, glide, and he's smiling. And this time he actually stops and he looks down and he says, you know, look around. Don't worry about a plan, but get on the fucking bike. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, he's spreading false news all over the place, and that's his specialty. So welcome to the stage for his true story, Jerry Riley. Anyway, um, I love this theme because I love plans. I always, have, I, I always have one or two or three or four plans going all the time. And, uh, and half of them work, some of them work, some of them don't. Uh, that's okay. But most of my plans usually involve doing something ridiculous to entertain myself and other people. So I'm going to tell you a very recent plan, a very recent story. Two weeks ago, I was away for work. I was down in North Carolina for the week. And uh, one night while I was down there, I was reading a magazine article. I think it was The New Yorker. And it was, uh, it was about this thing called prop money. And I'd never heard of it. Um, but it was really interesting. And it was, I mean, everybody's seen a movie where they have the suitcase full of money or the, the envelope full of money or a fist full of money. Well, what that is is prop money. Now, the thing about prop money is it's money they use in the movies. It's got to look like money. It's got to look believable on the screen, you know, uh, but it can't look too believable because then you violate federal law and it's counterfeit. So there's companies that make prop money and it, it's like six feet away, it looks exactly like a $100 bill. But if you look closely, it says, this, is a, this isn't money, it's a joke and there's Russian lettering and there's all this stuff that if you look at it, you couldn't possibly think that was real. Well, when I finished reading that article, I did what you know what you would do. I went on Amazon, Am Amazon, and bought uh, ten thousand dollars 
of prop money <laughs> delivered in my house the next day. Now, at that point, I didn't have a plan, but I knew that prop money would come in handy, and I knew that there would be a plan involving <laughs> prop money. So last Friday, I got home, and uh, as luck would have it, a plan landed in my lap immediately. Now, I live in Newton. Uh, in our neighborhood, about four or five years ago, they took a railroad track, old abandoned railroad, and turned it into uh, a, you know, like a park. And it's like a walking trail, bike trail. It's kind of a cool thing. It's called the Upper Falls Greenway. And the last two years, this uh, local neighborhood group raised a bunch of money and got artists to come and put sculpture along the path. Um, and it, they put it up in uh, last year in June, and they stayed up all summer, and it's kind of cool thing, and you walk down the path, see all these sculptures, and they're up in the trees and on the ground and freestanding. And um, So when I got back last Friday, it turned out that afternoon, I had missed it, they had just had like the opening of this show for this year, and 15 new sculptures up and down the trail, and each one of them's got, you know, this little green metal post and a, and a, and a, and a, and a placard with, uh, you know, it's kind of a laminated thing with the artist and uh, uh, the name of the, the work and the artist statement, the bio, and so you kind of go and see this art. It's kind of cool in your neighborhood. So uh, as soon as I heard that, I had a plan. So on Saturday night, under cover of darkness, we went out on the Upper Falls Greenway with the big oversized ladder. And, um, and we hung about $2,000 in $100 bills um, from branches in the trees uh, hanging above the trail, about 10 feet up so you can see them, but you can't reach them. <laughs> and, uh, and we put a couple of real dollar bills up there just to make it interesting. Uh, but then my uh, co-conspirator and lovely wife, uh, thanks to her, <laughs> Um, we also had a pole that exactly matched all these 15 other poles up and down the Greenway, and we had a, 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 um, a laminated sheet for this, this thing. And so here's what it said. Money Tree by Frederica Smith. Money thread on tree. This optimistic world work imagines an alternate universe where that old adage is no longer true. Money does grow on trees. <laughs> and, uh, and then they had the bio for, uh, for Frederica Smith. Frederica Smith got her uh, BFA at Rhode Island School of Design, her MFA at Mass College of Art, uh, where she studied painting. Uh, as she moved into the public sphere, she became more involved with 3D work, but always returning <laughs> to the theme that most inspires her, money. Frederica grew up in a financially precarious family, and uh, over her whole uh, working career, she has struggled month by month, year by year, to make rent. As Frederica said, it's all about the Benjamins. <laughs> so anyway, we hung all this money, and it looks way cool, hanging in this tree, and we got this sign, and, uh, and that, was, you know, that was it. So... Um, so that was a week ago. So I'm down there every, every day of this week checking it out. The people who organized the exhibition apparently haven't noticed it yet. That's a good thing. But um, the public has noticed it. People are really into it. And it's just it get, it's getting a lot of attention, people walking by. But um, now part of the plan we didn't figure, there's always surprises, is every day there's a couple of fewer bills up there. <laughs> and I think what's happening is at night, 
people know there's $2,000 in money hanging above their head, and there's, you know, you get there in the morning, and there's like big sticks there, and I think people like whack, trying to whack them down, but they get one, and then they look at it, and they go, this isn't real, and then they leave the rest of it there. But the, but the thing is, this exhibition is going to be up from now till September, and uh, I've got $8,000 more of $100 bills, so we're just going to keep replenishing the money tree until, uh, until September. That's my story. <laughs> Put your hands together for Kahuna. Hi, my name's Kahuna, and I'm the only sober Hawaiian on the South Shore. <laughs> uh, yes, I am in recovery. I'm 29 years sober. And uh, <laughs> that wasn't my plan, but <laughs> I tried to screw that up real good. Um, I have this major fear of kazoos, so <laughs> I, I, I'm glad the light's on my watch, so I'm make sure I don't go past five minutes. There's a story that I was told a long time ago uh, that I cried so much when I was a baby. My mom actually spanked me, and I stopped crying. So, not viciously, from what I understand, but it, it, I, I slept right afterwards. So, I mean, you know, tough love was, was big back then. Uh, and that story or that situation seemed to follow me my whole life. Uh, <clears throat> I, uh, a lot of my story revolves around my family, my father especially. Uh, my goal in life was to never become my dad. And uh, things didn't work out that way. My father was a good man, but he was an active alcoholic. And that basically went through our whole life like that. And um, in the service, alcoholism's huge. My dad was in, in the army, and we moved around a lot. And I have little blurbs and stories of when he was drinking. And uh, some of it wasn't very pretty. It's not stuff that kids should be brought up around. But uh, it's just the way it was. My mom was a very strong Hawaiian woman, and uh, hence the name Kahuna. And uh, so as we, uh, as we grew up, uh, my dad continued to drink more and more. And as I got older, uh, <clears throat> my job was to keep him from beating my mom. So I would make him cry. I would try to make him laugh, and then I would make him cry. And uh, <clears throat> so I remember times, and this is when we were stationed in Germany. I was like, Dad, Dad, why are you beating Mom? Why are you beating Mom? You know, and then he would break down, and he would cry. And all he'd ever want was a cup of tea. Give me a cup of tea. Give me a cup of tea. And I felt like I was protecting my sisters. I had two sisters at the time. And uh, I felt like I was the protector. And uh, you know, that's, that's a horrible way for a kid to grow up. But uh, <clears throat> as I got older, uh, my dad's disease continued to spiral, spiral downward. But <laughs> my mom being a strong Hawaiian woman and me getting bigger, 
my poor dad didn't stand a chance because we kicked the crap out of him. <laughs> you know, um, uh, my, dad, my dad's name was John. And, uh, you know, once again, uh, a situation came up when we were in Alaska. My mom said, you know, there's some meetings out there that, uh, that you can go to. Uh, it's called Alateen. And I remember my, my words right at the time. I said, Mom, Dad's the one with the problem, not me. Okay, you know, I was a very happy-go-lucky kid, uh, always trying to make people laugh. Uh, I mean, I was a good kid. And through everything, I didn't really get a chance to see how good a man my dad really was uh, because the alcoholism always took away from it. Um, long story short, uh, I basically, again, I'm never gonna be like my dad. Um, I end up getting married at 18. I have four adult children now. My oldest is 43. I have another one, 41, another one, 40, and another 38. And I also have two young children now, too. But uh, that's a Hawaiian thing, so you guys might not understand about that. But <laughs> again, my, my best laid plans were to not be like my dad. And I became my dad with the alcoholism and the drug addiction, uh, cocaine addiction. and. Uh, I was doing what my dad did. My dad hurt us. And all happy-go-lucky kahuna is hurting four beautiful kids. And they never stood a chance. They never stood a chance. So long story short, uh, as I get older, I leave those kids. And I go deep, dark into drinking and cocaine addiction. And at that point, all I think I'm doing is hurting myself. But. Uh, you know, there was light at the end of the tunnel. I did finally get sober. And uh, my nickname in the program is the Crying Hawaiian. All right, so 29 years later, I still, I think back of what I did to my kids. I think back uh, of how much I hurt people. And it still sometimes overwhelms me with tears. I was been sitting up in the corner the whole time going, what am I gonna say? So I'm sort of treating this like a meeting, okay? And speaking at the podium. Um, so I got sober. Uh, my wife is also sober. She helped get me sober. And uh, I'm not hurting people anymore. <laughs> in, the, in the program, there's a, there's a chance to uh, forgive people. And I know my dad was a good man. He just had a disease. And, uh, you know, I'm still going to continue to cry, but my tears have changed. And one of the best things that ever happened to me was the fact that I forgave him. And I'm so, so glad that I got sober. And I can look up and say, Dad, I'm not like you, but I'm doing better. Thanks. Lauren Doninger. Doninger, Doninger. Welcome, Lauren, to the stage. So often, as adults, we don't get to know like the full um, depth and breadth of our inadequacies until we have children to tell us about them. <laughs> to point them out, to make them clear. And of my three children, it's my daughter, Avery, who really focuses the spotlight. <laughs> 
for me on these, you know, multiple deficits. Uh, Avery's not here tonight. She is uh, snorkeling on a coral reef off of Egypt because she's on a break from her job as an international humanitarian aid worker in South Sudan. Avery is a woman who constructs a plan and then she implements it. And her plan was to travel internationally and she has done exactly that because, you know, that was the plan. And uh, I had not traveled internationally for a long time. When I had last traveled internationally, the way that money worked was American Express Traveler's Checks. And for those of you who never used a rotary phone, this, uh, <laughs> this was paper that was like an IOU in various denominations. You hid it all over your body and in your belongings so you could, there was nothing digital, but you had to get to the American Express kiosk. So until uh, 2012, when I thought, you know, I'm gonna take my boys, we're gonna go visit Avery in Ghana, and that's when I learned that you don't do American Express traveler checks anymore. You get a specific sort of uh, ATM card or debit card and you have to go to AAA. So I go to AAA, I made a plan. I went to AAA, going to Ghana, this is what, like, what are the fees, how do I use it, the whole thing. I took pictures, I had multiple copies. I had the 1-800 for not, for international numbers, for a problem. I made a plan. Now Avery is a person who, like, she's always making a plan and if you're in Avery's sphere, like she is figuring out solutions to problems you didn't even know you had. And she is like connecting people internationally to, to solve problems. It's like a kidney transplant ring that she is like sorting out internationally. And that is how I ended up going to Ghana, uh, having purchased a $700 computer for her roommate. And her roommate was then gonna reimburse me the $700 with uh, the Ghanaian currency, SETI. Um, and that's why I had all this cash, and which is why it took so long for me to know that the ATM card didn't work. We were law, or the debit card, we were far out of the big city before we had the first clue. It was in Takrede, and I tried to use, because now the 700 cash is running down, and I tried to use this uh, debit card and it doesn't work. So naturally the assumption is, you know, I'm an imbecile. I can't, I don't know how to use the card. Uh, but it turns out, no, no. I mean, I might be an imbecile, but this is not evidence of it. This <laughs> card, uh, I had really questioned the people at AAA. This car, card works everywhere, just not in Ghana. So, you know, so one of the things that happens when you're not an experienced traveler and you're you're traveling with somebody who is as competent and experienced as Avery, it's easy to sort of just defer. Like, okay, 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 whatever you say, okay. That's part of the reason why when she said, leave your passports at the compound in the safe deposit box, like they're safer there. Okay, okay, we'll do that. Uh, so now we're in Takrady, or uh, yeah, Takrady. Um, we don't have passports, we don't have money. Um, we don't have cell phones. She has a cell phone, but nobody else does. And the, she makes a plan. She is going back to Accra to get an ATM card. And, and the three of us who have just been following, she does like blind obedience. It, reduce, <laughs> it reduces the likelihood of us screwing up her plan. 
so we are going to go to Boussois, the next stop, on her itinerary, and she's going to go back to Accra. Like, we have been, like, we don't know how to do this, but she writes out the plan, we go, and she goes to Accra, and I, we get there somehow, because she has mapped out the plan very nicely for us, and Everett is not worried, but Griffin and I are beside ourselves, and we are escalating our, pan our panic. How do we find the American embassy now that we're out in the middle of nowhere, no cell phone, no passport, no money, no ATAM card? And we're thinking, what if we have to, like, we have to take a test? We're going to practice. We're, like, practicing as these hours are going by, like, <laughs> U.S. history, government, like, government, democracy, what are the answers? And then we think, we can't be too good at it or they won't believe we're Americans. <laughs> like, it's not like we're immigrants who are trying to learn and, you know. We had a modicum of comfort because, like, Obama was in the White House, Hillary was the Secretary of State, so there's a little bit of comfort in that. And... <laughs> Every, every hours are going by and we're stranded in Africa with nothing. And a Avery finally shows up and she's reading the panic in at least Griffin's in my eyes. And she said, don't worry, I have a plan. <laughs> Put your hands together for Carly Smith. So the joke is that I'm really shy, so you are watching me come out of my comfort zone when I'm here. Um, and also my story's about underwear, so this is gonna go <laughs> great. <laughs> so um, I got married when I was 23 to my high school sweetheart. It was a great plan. I was so happy, happily married until I was 27, and he told me that he had another relationship with someone else for nine years, and um, and he was blackmailed into telling me the truth. So I was like a little pawn in a scheme, and I was heartbroken. It was horrible. So I took my dog, and I went home to my parents' house, like any adult woman does. <laughs> and um, of course, my parents are like, "Oh, come in, and you know, pick up the pieces and put yourself back together." And is anybody in here married? Any women in here married? Okay. So like the dating underwear wardrobe and the married for four years underwear wardrobe are two very different wardrobes maybe for you but for me yes um so once I was kind of like getting my confidence back and I was like okay I'm not I'm not a horrible person like I can get myself back out there I'm 27 and I'm washed up and nobody's and I'm an old hag but like I'm gonna get back on the horse right so um I thought if I'm gonna be dating anybody, then like this underwear needs an overhaul. So I pulled my best friend, Ra I threw away all of my underwear, I pulled my best friend Rachel, and I was like, I have researched, because I don't do anything without a plan, I have researched the finest bra salon on the Eastern Seaboard, and it is in New York City, in Manhattan, uh, in Murray Hill, and it is called Linda the Bra Lady. And I thought, Linda the bra lady is going to fix me right up. She is going to take this raw clay and make it into a Victoria's Secret supermodel. So if you're listening to the podcast, I'm 5'10", and I wear a size 2. And if you're watching, then you're getting the real story. <laughs> I needed professional help. And um, I was kind of all set with being like, 
you know, if you are some more than half the audience that wears bras, I was just all set with being like poked. I was like with underwire and like, what do you do? Like, you know, you get something that looks nice or you get something that's secure and it's like all these whole issues when you're buying bras, it's a nightmare. And they're like 80 bucks a piece, like it's ridiculous. Why does any piece of underwear cost more than literally any other article of clothing that you wear? But I digress, so I was like, at least I'm going in and I will spare no expense because I'm gonna have the most perfect bra wardrobe known to woman. So I went in and I made my appointment with Linda and um, I'm sorry, I should say with the salon that was named Linda, the bra lady. You have to be very high profile to get to be with Linda herself because I was put with someone named Jenny who was not Linda. <laughs> so before, so you have to call and make an appointment. It's very like closed door bra salon. I don't know what they're doing to the bras there. I didn't get to find out, but you have to make an appointment and it's very specific. Like you have to tell them exactly what you want. And so I, I, I said, I want, you know, a whole new bra wardrobe. I want to feel beautiful. I want underwear that's like, like fun colors and like really pretty. And um, and then I also need like a one sports bra. I'll take one sports bra, but then everything else has to be beautiful. They're like, great, come on down. We can help you out. Before you arrive, you have to um, read all of these articles and watch all these YouTube videos. So you're educated before you come into the salon. And I was like, I am willing to do the homework for the world's most wonderful bra wardrobe. So I did it. I watched all the videos. It was all about like, here's what your appointment's gonna look like. Someone's gonna measure you and whatever. And um, and I am very much of a shy person. So I was like, you know what? I'm, I am a strong independent woman now because since my divorce and I'm gonna go in there and I don't care. Like someone's, I'm not gonna be the, the worst boobs this person has ever seen. So I'm gonna go in there and be measured and like get what I want. And that was like all my courage to get into that situation. So into that mindset. So Rachel and I drive four hours. We meet our friend Andrew who happens to live in the city and we're like, we're here for the bras. We're <laughs> and Andrew's like, don't you wanna take in a Broadway play or do a, go to a fun bar? And we're like, we're here for the bras, that's it. So we show up for the appointment and you walk in and there's like a lobby area with a receptionist and I had to check in and she said, um, I don't know if you watch, read the articles and watched the, and I was like, oh no, 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 I'm gonna stop you right there. I read all the articles and I watched the videos. I am ready. And she's like, well, there is a $35 minimum purchase and if you don't buy something for $35, then they charge you like 20 bucks for the appointment or whatever. Immediately my bullshit meter was going off, but I was like, ah, whatever, I'm here for the experience. I'm gonna be spending a few hundred dollars if it all goes according to plan. So I'm like, that's fine. So I'm patiently waiting for Jenny, um, I mean for Linda, who I think is Linda, and um, Andrew and Rachel are with me and they're on this like velour couch, which is supposed to look expensive. And they are like, we're gonna be here. And I was like, can you guys like come back and see? Like, I don't want you to see my boobs, but I want you to see the bras. And they're like, we're here for you, we got you, you can do it. So I'm like, okay, great. So they introduced me to my consultant and it's this woman, Jenny. And Jenny brings me through this polyester curtain and she puts me into a dressing room with no door. 
and she's like, take off your shirt, take off your bra, I gotta measure you. So she measures me, and, she, and I'm standing there naked, and just underwear on, it was horrible. She, she brings me a pile of bras, and she's like, try these on, they won't fit, but if they don't fit you, I have to walk down the stairs and get you a different size. And I was like, oh, okay. They didn't fit as predicted. So I was like, I'm really sorry that you have to walk down that flight of stairs. And she's like, oh, it's fine. She's like smacking gum and she walks down the stairs. So he brings me up, it's up all nude colored bras. And I was like, this isn't really what I was looking for. And she was like, no, for you, you just need a nude minimizer. You shouldn't be wearing anything else. And I was like, oh, it's not my thing, but fine. I'm playing the game, so I try on the bra and I was like, um, she was like, how does it feel? And I was like, it's really scratchy. And she was like, well, sometimes we think we feel things. And I was like, oh, I gotta get out of here. So I go back out into the reception area and my friends are gone and the receptionist is like, your friends left. And I walk down the street and I see them in the pane glass of a deli and they're like face first in pastrami sandwiches at a Jewish deli. And I was like, guys, this was a horrible experience. So long story short, I went to TJ Maxx, I bought a bra, <laughs> and I met the new man I'm going to marry in that TJ Maxx bra. <laughs> okay, Emma Gerchik. Gerchik, I'm sorry, I was told how to pronounce your name. Emma, welcome to the stage, Emma. <laughs> We all have our own idea of what a perfect date is. Maybe going to a bar, coffee, or nude beach with a massage? <laughs> yeah, but anyway, for me, it usually involves something active. So the guy I was seeing at the time suggested, why don't we go for a hike? And I thought, this is a great idea, sure, why not? So we decide to go for a hike, and I'm, I go to pick him up, and we're gonna go to a mountain. I've never been to this mountain, but I'm like, you know what, I'm game, should be fun. I go to pick him up and I'm told it's a light, light hike and he shows up, serious hiking boots and this backpack with all these zippers, clips, and very full. <laughs> I'm getting a little worried. It's our second date and I thought I knew him well enough that I wouldn't end up featured on Dateline NBC, but <laughs> little chancy. But decide it's summer, I'm a little bored, I'll go with it. So he gets in the car, drive to the mountain. We get there and it's a perfect day. Mid-70s, sunny, little breeze. We go up the mountain, great conversation. It's none of that like awkward stalling thing, this uncertainty that comes with early dates. It was more, you know, easy, joking. So I'm having a great time. We get up to the mountain and we find this scenic overlook. Sit there, it's perfect. He starts to unzipper the bag. At this point, I'm getting very curious and I start leaning over and taking a look in. But he won't let me see what's in there. Little nervous. But once he gets what's in there out, I start to see this feast coming out of the bag. It's a full out picnic, complete with ciders and their own little miniature brown paper bags. He was well prepared for this date. So, the day goes on, it's, it was early afternoon when we started out, but evening goes by, we're talking, it's a great time. And then we watch the sunset. It's a beautiful sunset. Brilliant red streaks all across the sky, cutting through the dusk. But then it hits me. It's sunset. We're on top of a mountain. 
We are idiots. So I look over to him and I can see on his face that he's having the exact same thought, more or less. So we don't have too many options, so immediately we decide to try to scramble down the mountain. So, you know, it's dust, so we can kind of see where we're going. Doesn't stop me from twisting an ankle or him from falling and skinning both his hands and me from cracking my phone. It's a good time. But we're making our way through. It's about a third of the way, and at this point, it's now pitch black. We're down to one phone because mine's broken. So we have a flashlight. You can't really see what's a root, what's a rock, what's even ground. It's all downhill slope. And the wind starts to pick up, and you can feel the moisture in the air, the heavy humidity that only summertime will bring before a nice thunderstorm. Yeah. So we start to hear the rumbling of thunder in the background. We're not really talking anymore at this point. <laughs> it's more so just cursing under our breaths and some nice gasps whenever we fall to the ground. It's going real well. So we're making our way down very fast, despite the dark continuing to fall, and it starts to rain. Shocker there. And you can hear the thunder in the background getting louder and louder, the flashes coming. At least we can see with the flashes, but we're making our way down. And I don't know how we managed to make it down the mountain. And when we had gotten there, there was a visitor center with a restroom. Well, it turns out by the time we got down there, like nine or so at night, visitor centers closed. We'd been up on the mountain for several hours and both had to go to the bathroom. So on a date in the middle of a rain, have to take a squat. <laughs> That's good. Second date, by the way, so really nice for me. <laughs> so then we get to the car, and the key is lost. Oh. <laughs> yep. So went back to where, took said squat, and had to search for the key in the rain. <laughs> Eventually found it, drove home. We did go on a third date, but didn't get much further than that. Thanks. <laughs> Please put your hands together for Matthew Cecil. Uh, between my junior uh, and uh, between my sophomore and junior year in college, uh, I lived uh, for a summer in Juneau, Alaska. And as the summer was winding down, uh, I was out there with a couple of fraternity brothers, and we'd met a bunch of other people. And we ended up having about three days before we had to put our car, uh, my car, my station wagon, back on the ferry, back down to Prince Rupert so we could then connect with the road system and then come back to the lower 48 and go back to, to college. So we had about three days. Um, so we thought to ourselves, we've had so many adventures here, um, why not go on just one more well-planned out um, fun adventure? Um, so we decided to kayak um, to this area that's just south of town, and that's, that's Alaskan for about 30 miles away. I just Googled it this morning. I had no idea. Um, so it is about, it's about, about 30 miles from where we were living. Um, this is all fjords. This is all this little towns and then big open wilderness in the middle of nowhere. Um, so, so, so basically, we had this plan like we would get these kayaks. Um, I'd never kayaked before, by the way. Um, and we would go down the channel, um, which is hypothermic all year round. Uh, the water's about 40 degrees. It's ocean water, so huge tide shifts, about at 18, it's just shy of the Bay of Fundy as far as tide shifts are concerned. Um, so it's hypothermic all year round. You've got about 10 minutes 
um, before your limbs don't work. You got about another 10 minutes and your heart stops. So the theory is, is with all these dotted islands all over southeast Alaska, if you paddle about, I would say about 10 minutes swim from shore, uh, you're usually good. So what this entailed was actually we're going to this area called Pack Creek, which is a, a wildlife preserve area on Admiralty Island. Um, and it's run by the Forest Service. They only allow about 10 people there a day, and you have to get special permits and everything like that. We'd actually won the lottery and got the special permits. Um, and basically what it is is it's this bear viewing area. Um, and the salmon come in, uh, they go up in this stream, and it's a big wide open area, and the Forest Service runs it, and um, like the bears come down and they just feed off the salmon like you see in the movies, you know, like things like, and it jumps and they, they just eat, and they're sitting like right there. And the idea is that these bears get used to having people there, even though there's only a handful of people a day. Um, and then usually there's some like Forest Service guy there with like a gun who's like, yeah, just like if they come over here, just get out of the way. And you're like, that's super reassuring, thanks. Um, is there anybody else with a gun? Just you? Cool. So we go, um, so the plan is we go down the channel and then the one big problem is, is to get, you have to get across the channel from Douglas Island over to Admiralty Island. It's about an hour and a half crossing in open water. Um, then you go up into this uh, tidal inlet, it's called Oliver's Inlet, and it flows like a river in and out with the tides. Um, and then you go across this chunk of land that's about a mile and a half long, and on that chunk of land there is an old railroad uh, from a mining operation. Um, and so basically what there is on that is like this little cart um, with like a handbrake, like you would see like, uh, like I don't know, like, why, like, like in a cartoon or something like that from like the 40s or something. So you basically go across this portage, on the other side of this portage there's a cabin, a forest service cabin. We actually got the rental permit for the cabin. So we're like, this is like the best idea we have ever had. This is like a major accomplishment. This is like an expedition style level, like, like what, like we go Everest next? Like what's, what do we do next? So, so you go from there, from the cabin to Pack Creek, and that's another couple miles um, of paddling up, but you're, now you're inside Admiralty Island. So Admiralty Island, is the seventh largest island in the United States. There is a small village, a native village called Angoon, and it has about 700 people on it, and that's it. So the island is about 1,600 square miles. To put that into perspective, Rhode Island is 1,200 square miles. So the great thing about Admiralty Island um, is that it's known for its extremely large brown bears. So brown bears, like grizzly bears and stuff like that, if you live in Montana and you see a brown bear, a big grizzly bear, they are usually, you know, like six, seven hundred, eight hundred pounds. They, use, they eat mostly vegetation. They get pretty big, but these things are about twice that size because they do nothing but eat salmon, deer, all sorts of other stuff, and they get really big. Because there's so much of that in Alaska, on this island, 1,600 square miles, there are about 1,600 to 2,000 brown bears. That's about a brown bear per mile or more. So, great idea. So, <laughs> I'm not a big gun person, but we bring like bear, like I've, been, I've been living in Alaska for a couple months, so I bring bear spray, you know, like I've got like, I don't know, like a knife or something like that. We have bear-proof canisters, all this stuff. So we go down the channel, we get that's fine, like we, we're figuring it all out, like we go into this big crossing and it's this big crossing where you're kind of just like, you know, like you could die at any moment, but you're just kind of like paddling, you know? And so you get into like that rhythm where you just kind of like, it's kind of hypnotic, you're like if you're a runner or something like that, like you start to think about stuff. And I'm thinking to myself like, I, I love it here. Like, why am I going back to school? Like, do I need a psychology degree? I don't think so. Um, this seems pretty cool. I'm working at a restaurant, that's cool. I'm getting paid, that's cool. Like, why am I going back? So 
we get there, and so we get to the mouth of Oliver's Inlet. So we're like, this is sweet. Like, again, this is only three days that we have. We hit this tide right. We get right in there. We get to that Forest Service cabin that night. We're safe and sound in the cabin. All's cool. So we get to Oliver's Inlet, and it's rushing out like a river at about 100 miles an hour. So there's no way we're going anywhere near that. So that's about a six-mile journey upriver, fully loaded kayaks. We think that's probably not going to happen. So the sun's going down. It's just getting late. We're like, you know what? We just need to camp here. So we set up camp. We know kind of what we're doing. Like we cook food way away from where we're camping. We do all this other stuff. But you keep in mind, like you have to know like where every piece of food is because these things can smell food from like a thousand miles away. So you're cooking and doing all this other stuff. And then we go to bed at night and like you're exhausted. So you kind of sleep. And then like in the middle of the night, this guy, <laughs> one of my fraternity brothers that I'm um, in the tent with is like sound asleep. I can hear something rustling outside. And I'm like, oh, son of a bitch, that's totally a bear. And it's just walking around, and like all of a sudden you hear like on the tent, and it just goes, <sighs> kind of like when your dog smells for something or smells you like in the morning or something like that. And all that can go through my head is like every Snickers wrapper, everything. And I'm like, Jesus, I left like a candy bar in my pocket. Like we're all dead. <laughs> and so like, so that's night one. And so I'm sitting in the, in the sleeping bag, like, all curled up, and I'm like, I'm like, so we're all just, like, burritos at this point. Like, this is all going to go very badly. So we get through the night, and we get up, and once again, the, the inlet, because we're, we're navigators that we are, is flowing the other way again. So we figured this is, we're screwed. So we wait for the tide to come in, and all we get to that night, instead of getting to Pack Creek, is the Forest Service cabin at the other end. We're still, like, 10 miles from Pack Creek. So we're like, you know what? Whatever, like, so we spend the night just, this tram is actually downhill from Oliver's Inlet to the cabin. So we, like, we get all of our stuff down there, we kayak around a little bit, and then we go back and we pull the thing up, we just end up drinking all night and riding this thing down, like, uh, like a rail, like, you know, like, woo, it's got a handbrake, and we're going like 100 miles an hour, super safe. And so, um, <laughs> as, as usual, and at one point, uh, we all kind of jumped off because we thought it would be funny, and my friend Adam just kind of, like, disappeared, like, he didn't know that no one was on the brake, and he just <laughs> disappeared around the corner. And then we were kind of like all standing there like, oh, that probably wasn't a great idea. <laughs> and he's just gone. So, so we sleep in the Forest Service cabin. So we find, he's fine. But like, so we go to the Forest Service cabin. The next morning, we're like, you know what? We, got, we have a good day now. All we can do is get out of here at this point. So we turn around and we load all of our, the kayak, we put four kayaks on when we're going downhill. But you really can't put four on this cart and pull it back uphill. So we do it in pairs. So my friend, this guy Alex that I met out there, he's out front and he's got like a rope, right? And he's pulling and I'm head down pushing the back of this like, you know, wily coyote cart. So we're going uphill and it's not bad. It's like, it, it, it's not fun, but it's not bad. So we're going uphill and then like all of a sudden, like I am holding like the whole weight of this thing. And I look, I'm like, what the hell? And I look up and Alex is gone. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And I turn around, and he's standing behind me. And he's like, a, a bear, a big fucking bear right there. And it was about 10 feet from us. It was this huge brown bear. And basically, everything is in the, ca the kayaks at this point, like all of our bear spray, whatever was in, like, like and so I'm like, I'm, I'm holding the whole thing. And I, I lock the brake off. And the bear just kind of stands up and looks at us. <laughs> and he kind of like almost like he was like looking like what the hell is this crap you know and he looks right at us and brown bears have a very wide face they don't look like a dog they look like almost like like a primate almost they look kind of right at you 
and he just kind of looks at us and just goes back down on all fours and walks away. And we were just like, I was just like, I mean, like, what the hell do you do? And, and Alex was like, I was going to grab the paddle. I don't, I don't know. And so we just, heads down, we're just like, let's just get the hell out of here. So we get out, cruise out Oliver's Inlet, and now all we have left is the life-threatening hour-and-a-half-long crossing uh, in kayaks back into town. So we're like, we're like, wow, like survived another one. And so we can basically finish all the alcohol that we had on board um, while we're floating around, which is smart. And then it's beautiful out. Like, it's just like, it's flat as a board, which like never happens there. And then like, so we're like heading home, boys. And so we start paddling across, you're getting in that rhythm, and you're like, like, like I love this place. And all of a sudden, just like in New England, the wind comes out of nowhere, the tides shift. Now what happens is you have wind coming out of two different valleys at the same time. And it makes this like churning chop that comes in like three different directions, like the kind you get like maybe out in the middle of Cape Cod Bay, like in the middle of a storm. All of a sudden now we're in like four, three to four foot waves and our little kayak is coming over the front of the kayak. And just like, just like an atheist in a foxhole, you're just like, oh, Jesus, just get me home. I will go back to school. I will finish. I will get whatever degree you want me to get. Like, I'm just, like, I, and you're just, like, and we're starting to get separated, and you're just, like, son of a bitch. Like, I don't care. I will do whatever you tell me to do. Lord Jesus, whatever. I don't even know who you are. Just get me the hell home. I don't go to church, but I will now. And, like, so finally, like, we get to the other side of the channel, and we're, like, exhausted. Like, I mean, like, I think my friend got out of the kayak and just, like, threw up or whatever. And we're just, like, we're still, like, three miles from the town, but at least we're safe. And, like, basically, like, what we realized was is we had this idea of this, like, grand adventure, this Alaskan adventure of, like, sitting there and, like, watching the, the bears feast and whatever. And what we ended up with was, like a lot of these other stories, you, you go in with one idea of what you have as far as an adventure, what you want to do, what, anything even in life. And what you end up with is kind of like the adventure that really happens kind of along the way. So let's get to it and welcome Michelle Pelletier back to the Mosquito Stage. Hi. So um, when I came in tonight, the there was someone here from the last month, and she she said, "Oh, the bed, the bed." So anybody, the bed is actually still sitting outside, slowly deteriorating. Wow. <laughs> it needs to go to the dump, but. Anywho, here we are. So um, what I thought for tonight is uh, there's two ideas because I did what I don't usually do, which is I didn't make a plan. So you choose, make some noise. The one that happened when I was 13 years old or the one that took 13 years? 13 years old. 13 years old. Okay, so uh, Wellfleet in the... Mm, like 1980, and um, we're at my grandmother's house. It's the house next to the Holden Inn, and it's, um, what is it? It's October 31st. What the hell is that? It's Halloween, right? You know, it's really quiet in Wellfleet. 
they decide to go up to what's now the Wagner, yeah? What was it then? Thank you, all right. So they decide to go up there, but they walk and they leave my grandmother's car at home. I'm 13, my sister is 14, so we're hanging out with nothing to do at that time of year, and my sister says, hey, do you wanna take the car out? It's a really big station wagon. And I'm like, well, I'm already in my PJs. I had this really nice peach onesie. And she's like, well, just put some clothes on over it. So I did, and we get in the car, and my grandmother's house had a really, like, um, kind of like tight hedge and a hill next to it. And she's the first driver, because she's the older sister, and it was her idea. And we go out driving. And again, nobody's around in Wellfleet at that time, and we just felt like that was an okay thing to do. So we go out to the ocean, and then I'm like, hey, it's my turn to drive. And then we drive into town, and there was the old payphones right in town in Wellfleet. And I'm like, hey, let me call my California boyfriend. So we stop at the payphone, and I call and collect and charge it to the Hartford Current, because I was from Connecticut. And I did that for like nine months until they started to call my house and say, who's here? Nobody at this number works for the Hartford Current. <laughs> but it worked really well. And he wasn't home, so I was like, damn. You know, I just wanted to tell my boyfriend that I'm out driving around in Wellfleet at 13. And my 10-year-old son is here, so don't ever do that. Um, so we get back in the car, and I'm like, you know, we should probably get back to the house now. So. Um, for those who know Wellfleet. So I go around, I come, I can't remember the name of the road, you come down and it's right where Max is now. So you, you come down that road and we have to take a right to get to my grandmother's house. And as we get to the bottom of the road, I'm like, there's a, there's a car behind me. And really, literally in the last 20 minutes, half an hour, that's the only car we saw. So it comes down behind us and I'm like, I better put on the blinker because otherwise they're gonna know that I'm 13. So I put on the blinker, but I have no idea that the blinker turns off on its own. So I take a hard right and go, oh shit, I have to turn off the blinker. So I take my eyes off the road, start to swerve towards the hill, go, oh shit, and then I correct, but kind of overcorrect, and then get back on the road, and I'm like, did they notice? It was a police car. <laughs> and the lights go off, and I'm like, oh shit. So, but I'm like, okay, well, my grandmother's house is just down the road, I should really go there and put the car back, because then they won't, like, no, anything really happened. So I'm like, Lisa, wh what do I do? What do I do? And sh she's just like, okay, well, we'll go in there. Now, there's that really tight driveway, and it's a really big 1970s station wagon. So I go, Wah! and I end up on top of the hedge. <laughs> the car's like that. And I'm like, well... I guess I'll just sit here. <laughs> because there was nothing else to do. So the police car stops. We're on an angle. They come up and tap on the window. 
and ro I roll it down. And he says, have you been drinking? <laughs> and I was so offended. <laughs> no. Oh my God. And my sister's just like this. And of course, it's her idea. And that moment is the epitome of our relationship. Her ideas, me in the hot seat, always. We, 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 we would leave my great-grandmother's house through the back stairway down. I would get caught, she wouldn't. Anyways, we're on side, they ask us to come out, they put us both in the back seat. And I really wanna smoke a cigarette, but I can't because I'm 13 and they're police. So they let us go back in the house because they ask us where our parents were and, and we tell them we go back in the house and, I, and, I, and I'm just in my little peach onesie because I've taken off my outer clothes and my mother and my grandmother come home. Turns out the car was caught on a metal pipe on the hedge. They had to cut the hedge. And for years, until the house was bought by a landscaper, there was a hedge like this, and then up the rest of it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook, and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. Thank you.